Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Three Questions. I'm your host, Andy Richter. Today, I'm talking to Moshe Kasher. Moshe is a very funny stand-up comedian, an actor, and a writer. Moshe's new book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes, is out now. Moshe will also be bringing his live book tour across the country. You can find dates on linktree.com slash Moshe Kasher. Moshe joined me live in the studio, and we had a really fantastic conversation He's had some crazy stuff go on in his life. And uh, here is my great conversation with Moshe Kasher. Can't you tell my love? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm here in studio today, which is always a, a lovely. Thing. Oh, it's better than Zoom. Oh, it certainly is. I have full blown COVID though, so it might there might be a back end that you don't enjoy. Listen, I actually just uh, vaccinated myself twice yesterday. Oh, you self vaxxed mm-hmm. <laughs> I got yeah, I got there, some fell off a truck. Let's just say COVID wise, I do feel like I have been vaccinated enough because I have had a couple instances where I was in the proximity of somebody that then came down with you know, then later tested positive. And I'm not saying like I'm bulletproof and I don't think that, but I, but it is, I do kind of feel like, nah, I think I'm okay. Forever. Mm, well, I mean, no, I think I'm always going to be getting, can, I'll, we'll always get a flu shot and I will always get, uh, uh, you know, I love vaccines. I love yum, them. yum, yum. No, I, I love them too. Just, mm, I love, get enough. I love, I do gummies. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, they do gummy vaccines now. The Novavax gummies, are, they're actually yeah. very tasty. Mm. And they have CBD in them, so it kind of takes the edge off the stress of yeah, life. Yeah, the Vax vapes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if we could vape, if we could put the vaccine into a vape uh, juice, I do think we could get more people on board. I, You know what? You're probably right. You're probably right. Or if you just like, yeah, dip cigarettes in them, I bet there'd be people who'd be like, well, all right. I'm sensing right now a branding opportunity for Team Coco, okay? And I don't know if you want to put this up the flagboard or just put it into production directly, yeah. but I think Team Coco uh, Vax Vapes is not, it's not a terrible idea. Yep. And if there's anything that, that makes you think Conan O'Brien, it's, it's vapes. It's, it's vaccinated vapes. I mean, <laughs> in partnership with yeah. Pfizer. Well, uh, I'm here with Moshe Kasher. You know that already because I just probably did an intro to him. 
And you and, heard those crazy Vax Vapes riffs, so you know yeah, you're in comedically good hands. You, you know <laughs> that it's funny town. Um, and, he, and he's here uh, promoting his book, which you have a copy of. Well, I brought, I don't know, I, I when I was leaving, I thought it would be a good thing to hold up. I don't know, dude, is that a thing? It feels like a thing people do. Well, yeah. You make a point and you go, as it says this in my book. This might end up on Instagram, you yeah, never know. As it says in my book, which is conveniently in my hands right, right. now. Right, subculture vulture. Well, you, you should just like get one. Did you get like a big pocket pouch? It's like oh, a, like a, holster. a hip holster that you can just pull it out and like. Here Lowe, we when go. I, oh, that's a really good. I when I go to coffee shops or whatever, uh-huh. and I go, I, I I like to go through coffee shops in Hollywood and ask people what they're working on. You know, <laughs> I just I go, is that a screenplay? And then I turn it around. I say, I'm with the William Morris yeah, agency. Yeah. The, my favorite thing about coffee shops in Hollywood, although it hasn't happened in a while, is when someone recognizes me and then they carpet bomb me with names that I don't know. Oh, yeah? You know, oh, it's always things like, oh, hey, Andy, listen. Yeah, hi, I'm, uh, my name's Bob. And listen, I, I worked with uh, James uh, James sure. McElroy and also, and I also talked to Shelly, uh, you know, Shelly, you know, Mix-a-Lot or whatever. You know, Shelly Mix-a-Lot is Sir Mix-a-Lot. Sir Mix-a-Lot's daughter. It's actually disrespectful to call her Shelly Mix-a-Lot because she also has a title. She's Lady Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> He's Sir Mix-a-Lot. And when he got, when he got knighted, yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. in the family became royalty. Yeah. She's the Duchess of Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> She does not mix that much. No. She doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was more her dad's thing. Baby got title. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, Sorry. right, right, right. Anyway, I'm here promoting. <laughs> no, but I, that was always, the carpet bombing of names was always something that I would notice a bullshitter. And it was, you know, in the first few times I was like, where they'd say all these names, and I don't know who anyone is anyway. I still have things like we were, well, we were just talking a moment ago about auditioning and like well, a part that I was just reading for that was kind of like a dramatic part. My agent said, she said something like, listen, Brian Miller is auditioning for this. And I was like, oh, not knowing who that, who that was at all. And it wasn't Brian Miller. It was some other name, but I was like, and I even said like, who? And she said, Brian Miller. Brian fucking Miller. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Who that and what are you even supposed to do with that information? Even if you, I think oh, it's, Brian, Brian I, Miller. I'm gonna, I'll adjust the read then. I think it's because she was she was sort of trying to impress. It's actually kind of funny, and I love I love her. She Seraphina, I love you. But uh, it was the for the part of the leader of the white nationalists in in prison. Like I, you know, oh, I read for that too. Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> they said I was yeah. wo- woefully miscast. Yeah, I don't yeah, quite yeah. understand why. They said too Jewy. Yeah, yeah a little yeah. too Jewy for the for leader the of the white Nazis. Nationalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, she, but she told me when she told me about it, she goes like, and she said, "Don't be afraid to go dark." Mm. And I was like, you know what, I. I kind of think if I read the leader of the white nationalist party as lighthearted, kind of wacky, it, it might be kind of offensive. <laughs> no. Here are like, the rules listen. of prison. The whites with the whites and the blacks with the blacks. And you ride off you on know, a unicycle. <laughs> you know, I have to find something to love about every character. Uh, <laughs> so, here's so. how prison works economically. We sell vape vax. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, so, um, coffee but, shops in Hollywood. Oh, I was going to say I, and it actually does tie into the book because part of the, 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 the book is how many different universes I've kind of lived yeah, in. Yeah. And it is something like, you know, I have like a little sheet of research here on you and it really is. It sounds like six different people. Well, it kind of in a way is, but they, I, it, I, I don't know. They kind of synthesized into, I, I think that's what everybody's life is, right? It's these like, mm, no, don't you think a little bit like. 
a little bit more than well, most. Let's get into it. But I was going to say that sometimes in Hollywood, I'll have this experience where I'm walking down the street, especially when I first moved here, and I would go, I would see someone, I would go, do I know that person from AA, from Burning Man, from the Bay Area? Are they a comedian or is that Brad Pitt? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I'm recognizing. Yeah. Here. And see, not many people would get to do that, you know? Yeah, sure. Or do I know that person from Shul, you know? <laughs> or she, yes, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It generally, a little too Jewy for Shul. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but it is true. And uh, the book is called The Subculture Vulture, and it's in six different scenes. And I guess it's like, it's six different parts of your life that, like you just listed, Burning Man. Growing up with deaf parents, uh, addiction into, you know, uh, a, a mental facility. Yeah. I, then stand up, you know. Stand up and uh, and sign language interpreting and, and, and deafness. It's sort of like, um, you know, I wrote my first book. Uh, I, I came on the show a million years ago when the first book came out. Right. And it was the story. It's uh, my friend. Uh, Casher in the Rye. Casher right? in the Rye, yeah. the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Yes. So that was sort of the first stanza of my. Everybody always says, like, how are you on your second memoir? I mean, how, how many things have you done? And like, my, the first stanza of my life was this pure, just pure chaos. And then I got sober when I was 15. I got out of rehab for the last time at 15. Wow. Uh, and went in for the first time when I was, I think, 13. So there was a, most of my time drinking was in and out of rehab. Yeah. And I, you know, my, I thought my life was over. I, th I really thought like when I got sober at 15, I was like, okay, I'm going to live, but I, I'm like, I'm going to physically survive, but I'm done. Like there's nothing else for life for me in life because dr drugs and alcohol at that age were like the only thing that had ever made my life feel palatable. The only thing that ever made my life feel livable. And I thought I'm okay, I'll live, but I will be bored. Mm. And, and when I wrote that book, it ends like basically the day I get sober and, I, and everybody over the years, people would constantly ask me like, what happened next? What happened next? And I very specifically didn't want to write a book that was like a recovery, like Tuesdays with Maury kind of book. Yeah. And I started to think about that in the last few years, like what happened next? And the answer was everything else, you yeah. know, a lot. And and I, I I occupied these six worlds that really became these universes that became the building blocks of my personhood and who I am. And they are, like you said, they're AA and drug rehab, Judaism and Hasidic Judaism. My my father, when he and my mom split, my dad kind of got born again and remarried into an ultra, ultra, ultra Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And I spent my summer vacations in Brooklyn, essentially cosplaying as a Hasidic Jew uh, while being a secular Oakland public school kids, uh, you know, the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. Um, How did you pull off the payas? That was, uh, I'm glad you asked, Andy. Um, I, it was, that was a real tell. <laughs> I'm always thinking about hair. I, you're always thinking yeah, about payas. Styling and payas. You texted me, an, I would say, uh, a, a, a concerning amount of time about payas and whether I was bringing them to the podcast <laughs> today. And I didn't, but, but that was a big tell. Yeah. I had these tells in that neighborhood because what would literally happen is my father would pick me up at the airport. He would drive me directly from the airport to, to it's funny you mentioned hair because that was the first stop. The first stop was at the Hasidic Jewish barbershop at pretty much every time. We would stop there and this sort of, you know, like Yiddish speaking barber would kind of look at my California bowl cut and disgust and think like, I assume like, what are we going to do with this? Yeah, like, yeah. And try to approximate 
some the closest he could to a secular i mean he was in on it i guess in a way yeah and i would like cut well, yeah he, he would he was in on your secret yeah exactly like, yeah he knew that i was that i was you're some, not a real jew you're not the real not yeah yeah it's funny you say not a real jew because the kids in my neighborhood in in, in seagate this was the, the neighborhood in in brooklyn as uh-huh. i say in my stand-up act i say if you don't know how to get to seagate now, I'll explain. You take the F train to the last possible stop. You get off. You walk past Coney Island, past the projects, past the people of color, through a gate, through a time portal to pre-Nazi Europe, and you'll then arrive <laughs> in Seagate. Where everyone's ma- wearing different fashioned hats made out of beaver or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. selling baubles and using horse-drawn buggies yeah, and spitting yeah. at redheads because they're bad luck. <laughs> that was my summer vacation. You know, so it's so funny because, like, my my real Jew friends, my, my yeah. friends that have a fulsome jewish experience uh they had i i say in the book they had both a more and much less uh much more and much less jewish experience than me because they had a year-round jewish experience right i would have nothing and then six weeks a year i would be an extra on the set of yentl like that that was the 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 dynamic yeah so this barber would cut my hair down to create kind of a a silhouette right an illusion of side locks yeah yeah my dad would throw a velvet yarmulke on me slacks a dress shirt and he would take me to seagate where literally the kids in the neighborhood spoke yiddish as a first language these were accented children that were third generation american yeah they they had eastern european accents their families didn't This, this is the weirdest part is my uncle, like my uncle, uh, Uncle Heshi, he sounds like a New Yorker. Like uncle by marriage or your dad? My, my step uncle. Okay. So my, my, yeah, yeah. My, 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 my father's wife's brother. Yeah. He had uh, an American accent because he was a first generation immigrant, uh, a first generation immigrant's kid. Yeah. And the first generation immigrant's kids, the parents go fit in. You got to fit in. Right. Be, be, right. be an American. Right. So he sounded like a, an American. But by the time he got to adulthood and started having kids he was feeling comfortable in his position as an american and he would have these kids my cousins and they would be reared in yiddish speaking uh yeshivas wow. so they sounded he sounds like a yankees fan they sound like like characters in dr Zhivago. Yeah, yeah and the whole dynamic was weird and i would walk into the town with an english prayer book which was a, a scarlet letter wow i mean people would be staring at me i just felt Every second I was there, I felt so uncomfortable and I didn't know Hebrew. I didn't know Hebrew at all. These people spoke Yiddish as a first language. I don't even know like the alphabet in Hebrew. But this was the only way that you get to spend time with your dad. Yeah. Like you couldn't go there and just kind of be, you know, Bay Area Moshe. And it's like, oh, that's my kid. Don't worry about it. You couldn't imagine the pressure that he felt, that I felt there. When I was a kid. You know the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. I I said, my answer was I want to be a baseball player or a Rebbe. You know what a Rebbe is? It's, I do. It's, it's a mega rabbi. I, it's know, like, I do. It's like, and in reality, I didn't want to be either. Yeah. But both were filling this supposed, this hole that I thought was in me. Yeah. You know, the baseball for my manhood, the Rebbe for my spirit. And in yeah. reality, I wanted neither of those things. I, I, you know, I wanted to be the lead white supremacist on a new <laughs> TV show. <laughs> So that's the be- that's sort of the beginnings. Yeah. Um. And oh, oh, I'll tell you a story. I started getting older, and it was coming towards the bar mitzvah age. Yeah. And like I like I said, the people that have a year round Jewish experience, they're not like having. It's almost like a, a the coal di- to diamond pressure. Judaism is uh-huh. what I got. Regular Jews or whatever walking through the world, they just have 
an experiential. They have a life of Judaism and it's fun and it's not and they're friends and they go to summer camp and they make lanyards and they stare at flat Jewish chests and yeah, you know yeah. they have like a life. I was just like had this pressure and as it was getting closer, that pressure was like getting close to breaking me and the local rabbi rabbi meisels saw me and took pity on me he knew he could tell where i was he took pity on me he told my dad yeah let me have him on like wednesday afternoons or whatever and i'll teach him basic hebrew yeah and this is like you know the, the late 80s so at that time you could ask for some alone time with a kid and they'd be handed over <laughs> no questions asked right <laughs> so i would go to his house and he would teach me the alphabet I yeah. mean, it would be it literally we were starting at the beginning. I mean, and this is a person who's used to I remember that same rabbi. I once I, I confided in, in him. I go, I don't know that I'm going to be religious when I grow up. And he like started stammering and he just was like, I, I don't know how to answer. You would think that that question yeah. would be like sort of the entry level rabbi question. Right, hey, right, rabbi, I don't right, know if right, I'm right. going to be Jewish. Yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. He was so religious that no one had ever asked him a question like that before. Wow. This they would say, okay, so it's on the Sabbath, you light a candle, but the the, right, the right, sun right. goes down and your your drapes catch can on I, fire. Yeah, can can I, I turn on the oven, please? Yes. Yeah, the best yeah. one he's go, Well, you know, Rabbi Hillel said he can answer that. Just yeah, the fundamental, yeah. hey, um, should I be Jewish? And just like he was like, uh, I'm out of my depth here. He he outsourced me. To another rabbi, I so that's the level of religiosity wow, this wow. guy was. He was and a, what did the other rabbi? I mean, why the other rabbi? Was he just like so? He's from my father, married into a sect of Hasidic Judaism known as the Satmar uh, Hasidim, who are the most hardcore of all. If you can imagine, it's, no, I mean, you know, I, I, did, I honestly, the only Jew that I knew growing up was my uh, pediatrician. Up <laughs> sure, until, honestly, until like. <laughs> in college was the only well no that isn't there was like a uh, there was like a jewish kid in uh, i you know we when my mom remarried we lived in another town for two years and there was a jewish kid and one jewish kid uh-huh in in we call him the town third Jew. Grade. no i mean and there were there were other jews in town but it just that was in right. my third grade class there was one jewish kid and all the kids would ask him about like and it was you know it's the classic thing about like wait you get presents 12 days or you know and and then he would say like yeah but one of them's a toothbrush yeah yeah most know? of them are toothbrush you yeah get one yeah. toy and yeah. and and seven toothbrushes yeah, and socks basically. and things yeah i but, but that's the experience i was having that's what's so weird about my jewish upbringing is truly throughout the year i had no exposure i was in oakland public schools in the early 80s and 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 mid 80s and it was it was when Oakland Public School was like, when Oakland rather was uh, spiking in crime and, and it was too short and gangster rap. And it was just like, it was the wildest thing to then get on an airplane and go to the most, it felt like pre-war Europe, yeah, really. It did. Yeah. And I would just sit there well, going, where am I? Even, like I say, I didn't, I wasn't that exposed to Judaism at all. And then into adulthood, getting into show business, moving to New York City, getting a lot of Jewish friends. But most of my friends, secular Jewish friends, who then would then tell me about like, holy shit, Judaism is fucking crazy. Like there's so many levels of it. And then I, you know, I would live, I lived in Chelsea and lived around the corner from what used to be B&H photo. And like my, my ex-wife, whose name was Sarah, uh -huh. would go in there and they would see her name. And then like all the guys behind the counter would just be like, just like look at her, uh -huh. like Sarah, assume she's Jewish, see that she's not wearing a wig, and then just act as if she was like 
a farm animal or something, you know, <laughs> like just like, ugh, what do you want? Well, this is what's interesting for me about those those people. To those me, people. Well, I was going. Well, I'm glad you said. No, it. I chose it on purpose <laughs> because those people are not those people to me. Yeah. When I see someone in the airport or on Fairfax or or in uh, in Manhattan, it, you know, people that that I'm not going to assume, but I will sort of. Uh, I don't think it'd be so weird for you. When you look at them, you probably go, you notice, you go, whoa. When I see them. And I'm talking people that are, this isn't just like an Orthodox Jew. This is an mm-hmm. ultra, ultra Orthodox Jew living pretty much in a, I, I said in the book, it's like building a Wakanda in plain sight. Yeah. It's like uh, the, the, the Hasidic world, especially the Satmar world, is like a little bubble inside yes. of, of. They don't travel outside it. Yeah. And there's a reason and for that. popular culture, like television and movies, like they don't know. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Uh, that, they, that they exist like that. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you. But when I see them. I think I have kinship with them and they would look at me with that same look of like, yeah. who the hell are you? Yeah. To me, I all, I'm like, you're me and I'm connected to you in this way that I don't, I don't even fully, even as an adult, even having written this book, I don't even fully understand, but they're my people in this very bizarre, not just on a, like all everybody in my tribe is a, it's more like, no, you're like my uncle. I grew up with you in this very weird way. Yeah. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves I will get back to the question, why did he outsource me? Because this yeah. is the answer. And this is why part of what I do in the book to try to sy- sympathize uh, with, with the community. After the war, um, the, there was a response 
there, you can only imagine that there was multiple responses. Mm-hmm. And, and a big part of that response was uh, secular Judaism. Mm-hmm. was people, not that there weren't secular Jews before, but now it was like, okay, you're still, we're still making this, there is a God pitch. We're really doing that now. Yeah, like yeah. we all just burned up and, and had to uh, flee from our homes. And we're really, and that was the direction that my grandparents took. My father's mother and father, they were communist, American Communist Party members, avowed secularists. They, uh, and that was, uh, they left the fold and yeah. my father went back to it. But the the religious Jews that chose to keep it, some of them decided that we'll go, we will um, we will go into secular society and attempt to assimilate. And some of them said, "What we're going to do is we're going to build walls around the shattered uh, the shattered remains of what is." Yeah. And we, and and we we've lost all hope in humanity. We've all lost all hope in society. There is no hope outside of just us. Yeah. So they built these walls around their communities. And so when you see someone uh, in the streets of uh, New York or or uh, LA and you look and they, and you have these feelings of like, who are these people? Why are they living so far apart? You have to understand, not you, but everyone. And even me have to understand that you're not just interacting with that person. You're interacting with a person's interaction with the biggest trauma that has ever befelled, um, a, a, a people or certainly my people. Mm-hmm. And their response was we build walls around what we have left and hope that we just survive. And so that's the context yeah. in which they exist. Um, that's the context in which they're so far outside the margins of society. But some groups, like Chabad, who do a telethon, they had the exact opposite response. Yeah. It wasn't like we're going to preserve what's left of us by building walls around it. They said we're going to open up these walls and try and try to like join into society. And that mm-hmm. was the rabbi that uh, Rabbi Meisel's outsourced me I to. See, I see. Was one yeah, of the more yeah, user friendly, yeah. front facing. Right. Right. But still orthodox. Still. Still super hardcore. Yeah. But, yeah. But but they. Uh, if you can believe it, my stepmother was Satmar, which is really hardcore. My step, my my father's family comes from another sect of Hasidic Judaism called New Square, the Square Hasids, mm-hmm. and those Jews they live in New Square, New York. When Hillary Clinton ran for senator, one hundred percent. I don't know if this is exactly correct, but it's close enough to correct it. One hundred percent of uh, citizens of New Square, New York, voted for Hillary Clinton for senator. In a totally unrelated story, uh, Bill Clinton uh, pardoned um, one of their leaders in, in a Pell Grant scandal. Totally, totally unrelated. But the point is, <laughs> that's they are hardcore. Women yeah. don't women don't drive in New Square. Yeah. Maybe they do now, but when I grew up, women did not drive in New Square, New York. This is upstate New York, and women did not drive. Yeah. So that. I was from the two most hardcore sects of Hasidic Judaism that existed. Yeah. And then I would just go back home to to Oakland and just be like this regular secular kid again. Yeah. And having friends that have had, like I, I, was, it, I was in young adulthood when I was presented with the notion of like what your dad did, like a yeah. born again Jew. Right. Because the, I would say that the, of my, from where I'm from in Yorkville, Illinois, in, you know, like graduated from high school in 1984, the biggest sort of sociological movement that I experienced that I was present to was the born again Christian. Uh-huh. There was like in our town, there was a storefront church that when I was, you know, in, you know, later grade school into junior high was a storefront. By the time I was out of high school, it was a mega church that had built this giant church out in the country and that, a you know, ton, that tons of people were coming kids that I went to high school with like this. And, and I mean, for him, it was, there was a, a kid that was uh, Lebanese 
and was so he was already very exotic uh-huh. for us. But Lebanese Catholic, and then he he lived in our town, and then he got caught up in the born again stuff. He was a huge Genesis fan. Oh sure, like, you know, you gotta be yeah, a huge. But I mean, prior to that. But which we were all kind of like Genesis, like, you know, <laughs> you, you know, everyone else is like listening to Van Halen and he's listening to Genesis. So it was already kind of weird. But like he burned his Genesis albums. Oh, like, wow. Literally like said, Wait, like, aren't they I Christian? Burned them. No, no. Genesis is. Um, oh, that's Phil Collins. Yeah. It's what Phil I- Collins and uh, Peter, the guy, Salisbury Hill. Yeah. Peter Gabriel, you know, they're art rock. They're basically right. sort of like popular art rock there is no shorter road to hell than art rock i think we all we all can agree on tell that. me about it roxy music is right now sitting on the devil's right hand um, oh i was gonna say oh this so this rabbi meisels i wanted to tell you this one story yeah. so he would sit me down and teach me the abcs and i was struggling and he noticed it one day and he's like don't worry don't worry hold on and he calls his son eldest son in. he's like shmuley shmuley come in come in he goes Say the English alphabet. And the kid goes, oh, no. And he goes, A, B, G, D. And then the rabbi's like, see, he is stupid in English. You are stupid in Hebrew. Everybody's stupid. That was the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well, God bless him. That's nice. You very know? nice. Willing to yeah, humiliate yeah. his eldest right. son to teach <laughs> me course, to love learning. Beautiful. <laughs> Well, but anyway, so uh, just the, the the concept of born-again Judaism was so right. surprising to me because like a friend of mine had a like a had a sibling that was rock and roll partier, yeah. kind of a little chemical problems, and then all of a sudden was like, I'm moving to a kibbutz, uh, you know, and I'm going full bore, gonna have 18 kids in yeah. five minutes, all this stuff. And it was, and you know, and it was all kind of like I mean, the sort of the, for me, the, the sort of the thread that ran through both strains was like crazy. Sure. You know? sure. And, but I did feel, and tell me if, if I'm correct in this, I did feel that Judaism when, is less crazy than Christianity. In no, a way, yes, no. you are correct. In that. <laughs> yes. No, no. But just that when people were born again, it was kind of like, oh boy, it was kind of, you know, it was like, it was just like. It was like they got a, like a new thing that they wouldn't shut up about. Oh, there is. Whereas in Judaism, I always felt like the secular Jews were like, there was a bit of, well, they're doing the thing that's actually a little better than what I do. Oh. Like there's a little bit of guilt <laughs> and like, I'm not as good a Jew. They decided to be a better uh-huh. Jew than me. And that they that there was some sort of qualitative difference to the more sort of enlightened you know, hardcore I ha- I Jewish that's, person. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I can answer it only in my own family, which is that, like I said, my mother left the, fo- my grandmother rather left the fold and said never again, like mm-hmm. hardcore communist. She meant a different thing when she said never again. She meant it. I think she meant both in a weird <laughs> way. Yeah. And she married my grandfather who was in, himself a, a writer, a Yiddish novelist. And they were as secular as one could be while never leaving the Jewish neighborhood of uh, sure. uh, of the Lower East Side. If my mom, I, I imagine that my grandmother was deeply disappointed by my father's decision to go back, to go back. Yeah. And, and But I also understand what you're saying. I think that in a way there is something romantic about, for even to a secular Jew who might eschew all connection to religiosity, there's something romantic about, because it's so, 
the di- the difference between Christianity uh, in its current form, evangelical Christianity and Judaism, is evangelical Christianity really embraces modernity. That's really its thing. It's like we're modern, we rock. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a double-headed guitar and we mm-hmm. set it on fire for Christ. And Judaism, it's all on this ancient tip. It's yeah. all biblical. And so, yeah, in a weird way, I do think there's something like where you look at that and you go like, yeah, well, they're a fanatic, but they're my fanatic. Like, I yeah. like that they're carrying on this, yeah, this torch, yeah. kind of. Do you think, because, you know, I mean, it's a cliche about the about Jewish guilt. Yeah. Do you think that guilt is such a component of the Jewish psyche that it's just like a new thing to feel guilty? Like, well, you know, like, I'm already not doing, I'm not a good son. <laughs> I'm not a good husband. I'm not, you know, like, and look, I'm not even, you know, my sister just had 18 kids. She's a much, I'm not as good as her. Well, I think that, I think Jewish guilt, there's a there's guilt and then there's guilt, right? There's emotional guilt, which I think, yeah, that's just classic. And Jewish guilt is not that different from Catholic sure. guilt and every other. There definitely is. There are. There's guilt throughout. You but, know. But we have this. I think Jews have this heavy this heavy weight of history on our shoulders that is not unique to us as a people because other people have that a similar weight. But it is certainly. Uh, it is certainly ever present in a, in, a, in a Jewish in the Jewish consciousness. It's like so when you look at someone with the eighteen kids, you're go. There's something where you go. You're you're writing a historic wrong. There are missing pieces. If you look backwards in Jewish history, mm-hmm. there are missing. There are holes where there should be lineages. There yeah. are there are uh, ciphers where there should have been communities. There are uh, th- that is ever present in a, in in a Jewish consciousness, and so I think that's part of it too. It's not the emotional guilt. It's more like. Look, that's not for me, but I'm glad somebody's doing it because those those people were punched out yeah. uh, o- over our history. Right, and, right. And that's like, I think maybe that is why I uh, wrote this book the way that I did, because this isn't just memoir. It's history. It's comedic history. All of these are, are told through uh, sure. through. Uh, um, through my my ability as a comedy writer but i start in the jewish chapter we literally we start at abraham and we go all the way until today yeah. and every one of these segments any every one of these six sections gets this sort of comedic history doing a rundown of an american or an uh, uh, an american subculture and then at a certain point like i come into that history and i tell the story of my time in that world and i think like my affinity with history is because of that i think it starts with judaism because yeah. that is sort of the specter behind every Jewish community is the, is the past. Yeah. Is there a part of you that feels that you should be more Hasidic, more fundamentalist, more? No. And no. I think like, I, I think I've, I got really lucky in that because of the timeline of my Jewish world, my dad, and, and because of just who my dad was, my dad was an artist. He was a beatnik painter before he became, like, he was like an abstract impressionist painter. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a mime. In fact, he was a mime of such uh, skill that a, according to family legend, Marcel Marceau, the world's only famous mime, sure. saw my dad miming and was like, run away with me and join the silent circus. That's how good my wow. dad could have been in another... That would have been a different sub 
culture right, I right, could have been right. writing about. Right, my, right. my life on the road with my yeah, my, yeah. De- my deaf, by the way. And you would be Maurice or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have a totally different identity. And I'd be wearing a striped shirt. <laughs> you, right. you know I would be. And this, and you would not be talking. This you podcast would just be me. You would probably not have had me on your podcast. <laughs> you should so get a mime performer on your podcast. You, you call it No Questions yeah, with yeah. Andy Richter. Uh, he's, he's pulling a rope right now. Okay, this is really revelatory. <laughs> So my dad, his his connection to my to Judaism was very aesthetic. It was very much about like the clean lines of of Hasidic Judaism, the black and white, the the velvet yarmulkes, the the kind of he had a very visual. He would, he'd explain this to you after he made this deep, huge, sweeping life change. He didn't explain it to me. You, how old were you when he, when this change happened? Uh, my mother basically kidnapped us uh, when I was nine months old, and I went back. Wow! I started going back to Brooklyn when I was, I think, four, when he won oh, so visitation this rights. this happened when you were a baby. Yeah. His, his life changed. Well, this is the answer to the question you were asking earlier. It's like when you look at someone who makes a, cr- a wild switch like yeah, that, and yeah. you go, oh, are you... What's what's happening with you emotionally that you needed to do this? Yes, I which would, was a question I wanted to ask. Like, why did your dad do this? The way that I understand it now, and there's a meta, a visual metaphor for it that's actually sort of heartbreaking. My my, uh, you be the judge of that. My father was a, like I said, he was an abstract impressionist painter. He was a talented painter. He was really good. He went to um, FIT. He had a degree in art. He was talented. I have paint his paintings in my house. Uh, they were good, and he was a passionate artist. And when my father when my mother left uh, to bring me to Oakland on a, va- a summer vacation when I was nine months old, I have the calendar. When he died, I found the calendar from when she left. And the X's were marking off when we would return. And when the X's stopped, my life in Oakland began. She said, we're going on a vacation and just never came back. And my father, I assume, in the wake of his entire family leaving him and in the, the sort of vacuum that that left, was like, what do I do? And that is what religion is good for. Yeah, religion is great for what do I do? Yeah, like if yeah. you don't have answers, they're like we have all of the answers. Sure, sure, and they swoop right in. Yeah. So, so he became religious in that vacuum, and he took all of his paintings and painting supplies and put them in storage in Manhattan and moved to Brooklyn. And my whole his whole life, he told us when I retire, he never painted again. He stopped painting immediately and never painted again. In my entire life, he would tell us. Uh, his entire life, rather, when I retire, I'm going to open up the storage and I'm going to get my painting materials out and I'm going to start painting again. And he died before he got enough Retire chance. from what? What was The he... post office. Oh, wow. He was a postal worker. Wow. Yeah. And it was this really, it became this sort of mythological thing, the storage unit, the yeah. storage unit where all of my father's, you know, hopes and dreams and artistic uh, uh, life lives. And someday, like the Ark of the Covenant, it'll get yeah, opened up. Yeah, yeah, And he died before he could open it. And we opened it after he died. And it was just like, you know, just things, but they represented sort of everything. Sure. Yeah. That's like, that is something that like, if you wrote that into a story, people would be like, man, it's a bit much, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, come on, you know, a hundred percent, you know, but uh, cause it's heartbreaking. It's so like, there's such sadness there. Yeah. And I mean, and first of all, I, I mean, being from a, a parent, you know, like a, a, a child of divorce and then ending up, you know, and being so affected by that and never wanting 
you know, and then eventually getting divorced, like staying married probably far too long because because of the trauma, because of yes. I uh, because of what it did to me, and right. not just one but two. You know, right. like my mom got divorced twice, and I saw that the damage that it wreaked, and you know, and the damage that it wreaked on me that still that yeah. there's still scar tissue from today. That that sadness. I, I mean, it, do you think that that sort of leads into the the substance abuse? You know. Oh. One thousand percent. Yeah, because the two subcultures that I was born into that are more they're not really traditional subcultures, you know, deafness and sign language interpreting and Hasidic Judaism, the ones that were are sort of infused into who I am from birth. Those two things always made me feel other uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, just like I didn't fit. And the obvious way we've discussed with with Judaism and then back home. In Oakland, you know, my my my, uh, I I was always an other. Uh, in Oakland, you if you were a white boy, you were just automatically another. But sure. then my mother would come to class, and she had this funny voice, and she was signing, and it was all of this stuff was like the the building blocks of me feeling like I don't fit, I don't fit, I don't fit. Yeah. And then when I found very young drugs and alcohol, you know, because uh, that is what this book is about. It's about it's about finding your people, finding where you fit. Mm-hmm. And the first place that people that broken people find that they fit is at the back of the school behind the portables where the other broken toys live. Yeah. And I, when I found those kids and I smoked my first joint and drank my first 40, it was like immediate, like gone. Yeah. It wasn't even that I felt good or that I felt comfortable for the first time. It's more that comfort ceased to be a, a thing that I was after. It was more like I fit. Yeah. In, I'm, I am just here. Yeah. And the problem with and that. And also he's cool. Oh you know, yeah. The other kids like, Oh, here comes. Ooh, oh, that's the kid with the mom with the weird voice who sign language. And Oh wait, he's getting high and he's getting drunk. He's cool. Uh, and holy shit. When you're, when you're young, he's cool is the best thing you can hear it's it's all that you need yeah yeah it's like a it's like a uh it's like a life preserver yeah and, and that's because those other people they have their own version sure. of mo- you know their mother might not be deaf but they might be in their dad might be in jail or they you yeah. know it's all those are the people the the sort of broken people that found each other and made each other whole together in the back of the the of the school the problem of course is when you're 12 years old when you start dropping acid and getting high sure you don't have any adultness to say slow down take it easy yeah, yeah. uh go go slow and and let this experience develop so yeah. by the time i was 13 i was like wildly out of control totally it was so i could my brother always says because my brother was like the good kid he always got i'd never he older younger? he's older older and, and he was a straight a student but it's not like he was a square he partied too yeah. but he just had enough sense not to part i mean from the minute I he got... He had some breaks. He wasn't all gas. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah. you're always getting busted. And I would say to him, you think I'm always getting busted, but if you knew how many infractions I was actually participating yeah, yeah. in, I almost never get busted. I'm a master criminal. <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways. She's missing 90% of what I'm doing. So I hit rehab for the first time because I didn't have that that break at 13, like I said. And Is then that I, forced on you? or forced or on you, me. You're not like, you're like, fuck you. Yes. And they're like, no, you go. Yes. Uh, no, yeah. uh, and, and my first mental hospital when I was 14 and then in and out of rehab through 14, 15, 16. And then when I was finally almost 16 years old, I, I got, I got sober. I, I walked into an AA meeting. It was a young people's meeting. And uh, I was the youngest person by a decade. 
And you're uh, out of out of the hospital or whatever. I'm out of the hospital, yeah, yeah. and I flunked ninth grade at that point three times. Wow. I was in and out of. Uh, and that's not, by the way, easy to do. Yeah, but it was kind of. There were some cool parts because, like, <laughs> by the time you're a third ninth year ninth grader, you're starting to get a little tougher, a little, right, bit, right, right. A little bit more broad shouldered. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're like yeah, the, some whiskers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you got a Camaro. Yeah, yeah. Your, uh, But so I I had this realization, like a, a pretty adult realization at 15, is like, oh, I see. I'm the cause. I'm the problem. Uh, like, cause my whole life up until that point was everybody else is, is my problem. My, my, my mom and therapists and the Oakland public school system and Oakland police department, my dad and the rabbis, like every, and the people that are giving me psychological diagnoses and the people at the rehab, my rehab counselors, my family. I was in therapy, by the way, at a certain point, eight times a week, eight, wow. eight. Hard to do. That's more than once yeah, a day. Right, right. Um, I had rehab five days a week and then I had individual therapy, family therapy and group therapy. And that, wow. So my whole life was it was just being analyzed and and and, and talking about your feelings and how yeah, I yeah. had potential, but and and then to make matters worse, you know, I my mother's deaf, and so ninety percent of the time I'd go into one of these meetings that was about me, and they wouldn't have hired an interpreter because they just didn't do that, and so yeah. they would say, "Could you interpret?" So now I'm sitting in the room with my mom, inter uh, the meeting about me, interpreting to my mom the things that they're saying about me and being broken and behaviorally fucked up, and you know, you and the same for her. Like they're finding out what she's saying through, through you. Me. So yeah, you yeah. do like, okay, so that's a delicate dance. When you do that, you go, okay, I'm not going to be doing faithful translation here. Of that, course not. That ain't going to happen. Of course not. But I also can't sit down at a meeting with the Oakland police department or whatever and go, he's cool. Everything good. Yeah. Good boy. Because yeah, yeah. my mom will smell a rat. So you got to give over like, a percentage of the negative sure, information, sure. But, but shave it just enough so that she doesn't completely freak out. Yeah. And my biggest problem was adults. I was just like, I fuck, I hated adults yeah. so much. Every adult in my life was just a person that was just telling me how to behave and telling me that if I did it this way and uh, uh, that I would, uh, I could change myself. I just hated adults with this vibration. I can't even express to you. Yeah. And I get to AA, I go to a young people's meeting and I go, oh my God, it's even here. It's all adults. It's just all adults. And this sort of magical thing happened in AA at that time, which was that nobody told me what to do. They all told me what they did. Yeah. And it, it broke down this barrier. Had enough. you not been to AA before? I'd been, you know, there's just like there's guilt and there's guilt. There's yeah. going and then there's going. I understand. I was in NA meetings for years, smoking yeah. weed in the parking lot and uh, attempting to flirt with women like yes i was yeah. i guess i was going to meetings but you're technically not supposed to smoke marijuana at an na meeting i think so yeah that's sort of one of the tenets right, it right. must be one yeah, of the tenets it must be yeah but at this this was different this was i went to the meeting and i said i need help i i raised my hand 15 years old and i and i and like i said i had this kind of adult idea which was i think i'm the cause of all these problems and then i went to apply the answer to that you know, I think I'm the cause of all these problems. It's me getting high and drinking that is the cause of all these problems. There's a very obvious solution, which is stop drinking and stop getting high. Yeah. And then I got high the next day. And then I got scared. Because then I had the conscious realization, I am the cause of this, and it's the drinking and the drug use that's the problem. I knew that information, but I had no ability to do anything about the information. Mm -hmm. And that was the state that I found myself in at, at just 15 when I walked in to an AA meeting and said, I need help. And then I immediately, I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I, I don't know how to stop. I, I, I'm scared. And then I got up and I walked out of the room, which is like a kind of not 
I wouldn't say the best way to get help. You're just like, right, I need right, help. Right. And if anybody. It's a very 15 year old very thing. Very 15. To do. Like, yeah, Fuck yeah. you guys. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. But this. I need all of you. Goodbye. And I will see you in the hallway. Yeah, and yeah. so I was leaving, but somebody followed me outside. This guy, Pigeon, who I'm sort of in touch with to this day. He's a. He's a chaplain somewhere in, in North Carolina, speaking of the good, the good part of religion. Yeah, yeah. And he put his arms around me and, and, and hugged me, and he just said, it's going to be okay. And I don't know. That's not the, I mean, that's sort of the most basic, it's going to be okay. I mean, I know. That's not like Ram Dass level. We're not at Ram Dass no, level. No, we're not. It's and like, thinking of all the times in my life when I've wanted to say, or even said, it's going to be okay, and it being a complete fucking lie. I, right. Or right. just or just like, <laughs> I don't fucking know, but here I'm going to say, it'll be all right. Yeah, like I said, it'll he, all work he out. was a broken toy too. Yeah, he's, just yeah. some guy, he's not coming out. I mean, he is coming out there to help me, but he's also, that's sort of one of the, the odd paradoxes of AA is that you help people in order to help yourself yeah and i didn't know that when i asked for help that there was no possibility somebody wouldn't follow me outside because they're all in there trying to save their own skin yeah and so he said that and it was enough it was enough yeah. to get me to to like you know get back in the meeting and stay and that was the beginning of my time sober and it, and it stuck i i part of what i talk about in the in the aa chapter is my slow very slow uh journey into fundamentalism so I never had fundamentalism with Judaism. I always was able to wear it like a loose garment. I never felt guilt. I never felt like I should be more than I am. I always felt like what I have is enough. In AA, probably because I was so young and mentally undeveloped, I just jumped into it like your uh, Lebanese friend. Yeah, I, you yeah. know, I burned all my uh, 40, 40 ounces and uh, like they were Genesis <laughs> albums. And I, by the time I was 18, was like a firebrand fundamentalist for AA for soberness for soberness, yeah, like yeah. in a way that for was sobriety, intense yeah. and it was sort of the start of my comedy career in a bizarre way because I got sober so young and I was articulate and funny I started to get flown around the country to speak at AA conferences and it was that was where I learned how to perform for a crowd wow and that was truly the start of my performance career I did theater and stuff in when I was younger before my life kind of went off track but that's the first time that I got laughs from a crowd yeah and and the journey of, of in the book is when I turned about 30, you know, I maybe even a little later, I had been sober for a long time since I was very young. And I started to have this little niggling seed of like doubt of like, I don't know that this is the place for me anymore. And if I have had that doubt in Judaism, I could it could have been fine. If yeah. I had had that doubt in AA as a person with a more developed brain when I entered, because I think most people that are in AA, they don't go into it the way I did. But the problem with fundamentalism is when you find one thing that's wrong or that you don't believe anymore, the whole thing becomes possible that it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily believe that everything in AA is bullshit, but having a doubt was the seed that eventually led me to, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm in AA anymore. I'm still sober, uh, but I haven't been to a meeting in, in many, many years. Yeah. And part of what I discuss in here is my journey out. It's not a con condemnation of 12 steps or AA, but it is a, a, dis uh, a discussion of what happens to people when they get sober that young and then have to realize, you know, I'm 35 years old. Is it not possible that that was a phase in my yeah. life? Is that not yeah, a possibility? Yeah. AA does not encourage that sort of introspection, that specific kind of introspection. Yeah. And that's what I went through. And that's, so part of this is my journey into, and part of it is my exit from. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's, I can see that, that it's just, it's not necessarily a repudiation of it. It's just a personal moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. And, and in fact, in some ways, the principles that AA gave me 
are still really, really fundamental to the way that I live my life. Like mm-hmm. really, I, I carry a lot of that, um, that medicine with me to this day for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, I carry that stuff with me and it's really important to me. But you know, my, the other thing that happened was I, um, I was also 15. I mean, that's the, a really important part of this thing. So I was mm-hmm. so young that I didn't just want to be like a recovery guy. I wanted to like get into the world and like experience what it had for me and go find all of these other things. And when I was about, I think six months sober or a year sober, I saw this like flyer on a telephone pole in Oakland that this rave called Cyberfest was happening. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want that. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a grow? I don't know where I got this idea from, like raves are for me, because my whole time when I was drinking getting high was all in the service of like too short and gangster rap and like just being a being a G. Hanging out, yeah, yeah. And on then the corner, yeah. this like rave thing. I'm sober now. And I go, I'm going. And so I went by myself to my first rave when I was now now sixteen years old. And I went to this thing called Cyberfest, which was in the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland, and I had another transformative experience, another it's going to be okay, just completely stone sober in a warehouse in Oakland, listening to techno with people, you know, wearing Dr. Seuss hats. And like, like I, this, I just, I got there and I remember I got there and I, I this was my mentality. I, I, I walked in, I had, I used to wear escape. You remember escape by Calvin Klein? Yeah. Were you an escape guy? No. Were you ever a cologne guy? Like whatever my dad would give me for Christmas. Drucar you know? Noir. Uh, no, the, uh, the Vetive de Carvin. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, wow. Classy. Dude. Well, my dad's gay, so he's, you know, <laughs> he's not going to give me any fucking Drucar Noir, you know? Yeah, Drucar Noir is for, for ladies, man. Yeah, yeah, let, yeah, let's yeah, just yeah. say it. Right, exactly. So I had this bottle of Escape that I brought with me to, my, to the first <laughs> rave. Yeah, you know, you sweat, <laughs> you stink. I don't know what I'm going to. I right, don't know right. what a rave is. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. like, it had this like mystic appeal to me. And I go, and I brought this bottle of Escape with me and I had like a change of socks. And I remember I was walking in line and I looked down in my bag and there's a bottle of Escape and a sock. And I go, uh, I start stuffing the Escape bottle into the sock because I'm, I'm making a weapon. 
in case something goes wrong in this race. So this is the mind that I brought with me to yeah. my first rave. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I got myself a little right, potpourri-scented right, right. blackjack yeah, yeah. just in case I yeah. have to crack somebody. I'll fuck you up, but you'll smell nice. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, going to yeah. walk away <laughs> bleeding, but attracting people to you. And so that was the mentality I entered with. Yeah. I just like this, like, oh, it was hard to be around me, I will say. I mm-hmm. had like an accent. I had an acquired accent. Like, I'm not from the South. Yeah. But I definitely had a Southern. I never been to the South at that point in my life. Yeah, I yeah. fully had a Southern accent, yeah. you know? And it would come and go depending on who I was talking to. Right, right. My brother, who'd been around me the whole time, he would, I, I would be doing, I'd be doing it to him. Like, I'd be sitting there talking to him. I'd be like, well, David, you know, I don't know what today is. Oh, hold on a second. I got a phone call. Hello? Yeah, what's up, my man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just chilling over here. Yeah, all right. All right, then. Peace. And then I turn to him and go, what the fuck just happened? Where did that come from? What what shaft arrived all of a sudden? Like, what are you doing? So that was sort of who I was when yeah, I entered. Yeah, it's so darling. It's just like, it's so like, as a dad, it's just like, oh, honey, you just want to fit in, don't you? Would you find it darling if your child had that kinda, affectation? Yeah, kind of, a little I, bit. I, remember- I mean, to be honest, I have a thing where I end up, but it's also like I grew up outside of Chicago, hearing Chicago TV, but surrounded by people that had either flat Midwestern or sometimes even getting down a little bit country. Sure. And so, like, what people sounded like was four or five different things. And I and I have the tendency to mimic people. Oh, you'll go towards them. If yeah. I'm talking, if I'm talk like if I'm talking to somebody from Chicago, I'll start talking like this. hundred you know? percent. And and it's just and I've always had that. You, you know? know that you are, and I am too. And I know this, and I think it's a bad thing. I am a person. If I moved to London for a year, would come back like, "Oi, welcome, mate." I don't know that I would come back that you way, would. but I you would around, come back around them. I might start talking a little bit. Oh, you know? you'd be a little yeah. bit more posture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm from the streets. Remember the, sure, the, the of escape. I escape. Do. Right. Blackjack. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I got me bottle of escaping <laughs> and suck. What I love is raves. <laughs> More, first and foremost, it's the power of techno and electronic dance music, yes. right? But by the way, England plays. I'm off to Yeshiva. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, England plays a huge part in the story of raves. And, and like I said, each of these things is a history and my history. Uh-huh. And England had the same thing happen to it that happened to me when I walked in. When techno and house, which started in America. And yeah. I, I think in Chicago, a, I think. Chicago house music started. Yeah. In Detroit, techno started. Uh-huh. And nobody listened to it. And the reason that house music started in America was because disco was so good gay and so black that white America like basically they they decided that dis- disco sucks was they something they had rallies they had rallies they, which were basically and at the time I, you know, the big one was in Chicago. Steve right. Dahl, Steve Dahl, Disco go, Demolition. At, I go at, through that whole story. I, and and uh, at the time, I did not realize what a racist, homophobic festival it was. No, it, more racist than you think, or maybe yeah. you know this. People. So the idea was, as you know, you would get it was a it was a double header that night, to yeah. the White Sox game, and you would get in free if you brought a disco album to be exploded yes. on site on the field yes. between the two games yes. but a lot of people would show up trying to get in free and they didn't have a disco album so they were like here here's a Marvin Gaye album yeah. here's a Stevie Wonder album they would look at it and go he's black good enough and yeah. toss it into the pile so wow. it was so racist Yeah, uh, and the, yeah, that was the problem that occurred was that disco when it was gay and black nobody cared but when yeah. but when ABBA hit and people started listening to it on the charts and when it was white te- white teenage it's a lot like 
the crack epidemic. When it was yeah. in the inner city, we don't care. When when white kids started smoking Saturday Night Live, it, it, then all of a sudden, exactly, yeah, yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. We have to do away with it. They exploded the these disco records, and disco shattered into a million pieces, and mm-hmm. was reconstituted by people in Chicago making a new form of music, taking the shards of disco and creating this thing called house. And then in in Detroit, they 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 stripped it down even further, in, and they created this music form called techno. And nobody listened to it in America. Nobody cared. And it got exported to England, which was, you know, right in the middle of the Mar- of the Thatcher administration, tired of the establishment, tired of the repressive uh, tactics of the regime. It's it, punk rock is in is in the mix. It, yeah. it, it had just happened and it had just taken England by storm. And the rave scene completely took uh, England by storm and changed their culture completely. And then it flew. It changed all of England and flew back. So it was like it had been appropriated into Europe and then exported back into New York when mm-hmm. this this DJ called uh, named Frankie Bones went to New York to DJ. I went to London rather to DJ. He came back to America, started the started the rave scene in America, and it spread all the way across to meet me in Oakland that night uh, in in the nineties at the Oakland uh, the Henry J Kaiser Convention what Center. What was it that What was it that spoke to you so much? Was it the dancing? Was it like? Even though with you're not doing ecstasy, there's something transportational about it. Well, this is what I realize now. Um, is I got there with the with the, the the escape bottle in the sock. That's the mentality I went in, and I listened to this music. I started dancing. I never danced. I was like, as a white boy in a in an all black school system, dancing is where you betray your whiteness yes, completely. Of course. So the way I would dance at like Oakland public school dances is like. Uh, you know, I would just, I, you could do the, I call it, I discuss in the book, the booty grab slow dance, uh, which is just where you, you try to grab the butt of your part. This, uh, this is junior high and elementary school. This, it, we should not be doing this, but right. this is how they danced in the nineties. And then I got sober and I would go to these AA dances and I didn't, they didn't dance like that there. And so I would just stand up on the wall and sort of clench my butt cheeks to the, uh, to the, to the beat. <laughs> I just wasn't a dancer. Yeah, yeah. And I went to this party in Oakland and I started dancing and 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 then these two guys, this gay couple, came up to me, and they. I remember that I was like, dang, I was like pirouetting. It was like it was like I was having a a, a metamorphosis. Yeah. A, in real time, and this gay couple comes up to me, and they grab me from either side, they lift me up, and they they're like, "You dance beautifully," and I, I'm this like, you know, thug life escape bottle, you know, the southern accent guy. This gay couple picking me up. I'm like, what are they doing? Touching all on me? You know, what do they think I am? Who do they think I am? I'll show them who I am when they let me down. I grab them both and like kiss them both on the cheek and say, you do too. Like I literally became a different person. Yeah. And, and it's like, I know that when people think about raves, they think like they nowadays anyway, they like roll their eyes and go yeah, like, yeah, what, yeah. what kind of corniness are you, are you even talking about? But I had this like metamorphosis and now I understand it as like I had this, I had this childhood that was filled with, like I said, like arrest and violence and, and divorce and resentment and cultural confusion and deafness and, and shame and feeling uh, uh, out of sorts and drug addiction and rehab. And it was, that's what my whole childhood was. Yeah. Uh, my whole life. That's how I felt when I was a kid. And then I got, and I, so I didn't get a childhood. I just yeah. got this. I just got like clinicians and then I get to the raves, uh, to the rave scene. And like, I don't know if you, have you been to a rave at all? I never have. Yeah. They have this. Not my thing. And and I guess it's not everybody's thing. Yeah, yeah. But there's a thing in raves that is very infantile. 
everybody's wearing bright colors. Mm-hmm. Everybody's wearing like, especially in the '90s, like Mickey Mouse stuff and Dr. Seuss hats. Literal pacifiers. Literal pacifiers. Yeah. And 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 by the way, I I had a pacifier. No. Um, and, okay. and the reason people have pacifiers, no, no, well, you will after I tell you why, because the reason people use pacifiers in raves is because when you take ecstasy, which everybody at raves does, it makes you grind your teeth. I, and that's, I know. And so they suck. So that is your scene. Yeah, yeah. So they suck. And also there's a dry mouth, the component of it with the dancing. And then, so it's like, right. yeah, so they it's do, like, you don't want to keep loading lozenges. So you right. might as well just, you know, you might as well suck on a pacifier Put on a passy. So they're yeah, on yeah. drugs. They do the pacifier to avoid grinding their teeth into little rave nubs. Yeah. And I, I'm sober. I, I'm, I'm in AA. I got the pacifier because I thought it looked cool. Yeah. That yeah. Was, that, I just was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, this is now, this is a good look. Right, right, right. It was a Tweety Bird pacifier. I remember it well. <laughs> and I used to bring a stuffed monkey puppet to these raves and like dance around with it. Like the, I, so much so that I was, I had friends, my old like drug friends who came to me and they were like, I remember this dude, Joey came up to me. He's like, Hey man. Cause I had like, you know, uh, uh, bleach blonde hair and I would wear it with barrettes and I had this like choker with little uh, candy like neon stars on it and I I just looked like such a buffoon and he's like hey man people saying you gay now you want me to you want me to go beat their ass and I was like no, no. <laughs> like I felt this that was the world I came from yeah right and I felt this like freedom like I don't care about that at all yeah and I what I realize now is all the infantilism in the rave scene, all the like pacifiers and stuffed monkey puppets and barrettes and glitter. And it was like this pendulum. I went from this like horrifying version of a childhood all the way to this like weird artificial like yeah. drug addled version right, of a right, childhood. Right. But it was such a caricature of childhood, right? It's like yeah. we're dancing and we're, we have puppets, even though everybody's 16, 17, 18, 20 years yeah. old. It gave me this hyperbaric artificial childhood, renewed childhood, where yeah. I could redo childhood so that I could invent. Invent- literal trappings of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. With yeah, the like icon- you said a caricature of yeah, it. Yeah. Like yeah. the iconography of what it means to be a child, even yeah. though we're all adults. And everybody's hooking up and everybody's on drugs. So it's not really childlike. But it had, for me, this healing effect of by the time I exited the, ra- the rave scene when I was like 22 or 23 or 24, I don't really remember. Um, I was softer. I had been yeah. like softened in this way that I don't think I could have found in a different world. I think that it softened me in this really profoundly spiritual way. And I'm not exaggerating when I say like AA raves were as healing to me as AA was. Yeah. And all, all, it was fundamentally reconfiguring to me to be able to go to that in a, in a really direct way, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, when you said that, you know, that, that the real transformative moment is when that couple literally embraced you yeah. and called you beautiful when you have been through and you're in a weird subculture, you're in a weird bubble all to itself with its own rules. That's kind of like separate from the rest of the world. You've done that. Yeah. You've already done that in a number of ways, completely against your will. And they were all hostile. Yeah. They all made you feel kind of shitty about yourself. Yep. So like here you are in one that's has all kind of the similar kind of things, you know, it's like this odd little world within the the you know, existing world. Except they say I'm beautiful and they they accept me and they hug me, you know, and they allow me to be soft and pretty yeah. and childish and you know, and needy. 
Uh, yeah, of course. That's you ex- know, that's exactly. Yeah, that is exactly correct. And it didn't occur to me until this conversation, telling these two stories back to back, that it was the same thing that happened to me at that first meeting. Which yeah. is somebody walked outside. Somebody walked up to me and put their arms around yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I guess that's really, in a way, like that's all that I, little me, needed was yeah. just like somebody to like put their arms around me and say like, "You're gonna be okay. You're beautiful. Like you're all right the way that you are." Yeah. And yeah, it was it was transformative. That it, it's such a, you know, it's such a just to somebody to say, "You're special. You're smart. You're good." I care about you. I like you. Like, that is such a powerful thing. And there's so many stories. I just watched a documentary about a cult where it seemed like it's an HBO. Uh, it's not worth, but every <laughs> every person, every person that they talked to in the thing, there was like almost everybody they interviewed had a moment where the leader of the cult said, you are so brilliant. Mm. And they all went like, and nobody ever told me that. Right. And just, it, it, it breaks your heart to think about this world where how many people are walking around having never been said, told, you're special, you're beautiful. And, and so when they hear it, they go, all right, what do you want? Anything you got, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, yours. Yeah. It's, yes. such a, it's such a beautiful thing, such a sad thing, such a dangerous thing, but also like can be such a transformative thing. Obviously, you sitting here, you know, like it made all the difference in the world to you. Yeah. That somebody was nice to you. It's and it's just what you're saying, like my the 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 first 15 years. I mean, listen, my mother told me she loved me. I'm not it's yeah, not like yeah, she Yeah, yeah, no, I know. But, but the messaging I received was the it's not going to be okay. You're not beautiful. Yeah. Like that was the the primary message I received is you are broken. There is something wrong with you. And both of those things, both of those people hugging me, both of them were just saying like, it's okay. Yeah. You're okay. Yeah. And I just don't know that I would be around if it wasn't for those two things. Yeah. That messaging. Yeah, just, yeah. just what you're saying. Like, and everybody needs that so badly. Like, uh, like I talk to these people cause you have kids. I have a kid. I tell my daughter I love her like I would say an obnoxious amount of times a day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it occur I meet friends who are like yeah my dad never really said that I'm like it just feels like that's you know it's as sophisticated a parenting technique as um you're going to be okay is an advice technique yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah. I love you right, you're good right, you're right, special right. um and and yeah I had missed that and and I got that back I feel very lucky that I got that back. Like, yeah. I got that chance. Because, you know, even if my mom was saying it, I couldn't hear it because the, the other stuff was so loud. Yeah. And these strangers telling me that, like, it it hit me and it resonated. And I'm also very lucky that I didn't join the the cult in that HBO documentary because I probably could have. <laughs> I was a prime candidate. I don't know. No, because I think the whole, the other under, underpinning of it all was they were high all the time. Yeah. One of them even said, well, somebody had to put weed on the table. That was a line in it. Like, okay, well, I know where they're coming from. I mean, it was, um, it was, raves were not just emotionally transformative, but they were, they were literally transformative to me. I mean, to me as well. The second party I ever went to, and this is my, I think maybe my favorite story in the whole book, but the second party I went to, I went to that first rave and I just, my identity changed. I bought all new clothes, barrettes, everything. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know how to get to another one. Cyberfest was like on telephone. Po- it was a big party. Yeah. You could buy tickets at Ticketmaster. 
but I didn't know how to get to another one. You know, now I'm like all dressed up and nowhere to rave. You know, yeah, but I've, yeah, I've yeah. literally and no internet, no internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was a secret society. I mean, yeah. it really is, and that is part of what I love about subcultures is these little crevices and alleyways into weirdo people on the yeah. outside. And it's our thing. It's our thing, yeah. and that. It's our thing is my thing, yeah. you know, yeah, and that's yeah. true in deafness. It's true in Judaism. It's true in Burning Man. It's true in stand up. It's in true comedy, in comedy. Yeah, yeah. So I went to this AA dance, another AA dance, my last ever AA dance. Uh-huh. And this guy uh, who's one of my best friends to this day, he saw me dancing. Now I've learned how to dance. I'm like, you know, doing a crystal waters like shuffle yeah. at this like vets hall in Danville, California. And he goes, do you go to you, you go to raves? And I go, well, I, I'll go to, I've been to rave. I've, I've, got, I've done one. A couple hugged me. I've had a transformative experience. Is that what you mean? Yeah. He goes, what part? I have barrettes. <laughs> yeah. He goes, what party do you go to? I go, Cyberfest. And he's like, oh, let me show you a real party. And we got, he goes, I'm going now. And he's sober too? He's also sober. Wow. It's random. And truly this book is about more than anything, the random happenstance by which a life occurs yeah that only by the time you get to a a a phase of adulthood can you look back and say oh this was a journey this was a path that i've been on at the time it feels like i'm just being slapped from experience to experience the way i started stand-up was completely random and weird but now i look back i go oh it's because it all it's one of again it's like it's from subculture to subculture to bubble to bubble you and, know and 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 experience to experience and and if you look back and you're a person who believes in magic and faith or whatever you can say ah i see now in hindsight it was destiny or if you're not you go oh wow look at this random pattern yeah, neither yeah. is more magical they're right. both really incredibly right, right, magical right. yeah and uh, or you followed your nose to the aromas that you were accustomed to and that you enjoyed 100 and you didn't yeah, even yeah. know you were following your yes, nose you exactly. just like yeah um I mean, I'm sure your life is filled with that too. Like Absolutely. these random pings where like, if I wasn't here, I'd be here. Yeah. And, then, yeah, and, yeah. and then there's that thing, like you, when you're in the middle of deep pain, you, you, you say, this is awful. But then mm-hmm. you go, uh, you know, that, that story, like, uh, uh, the Chinese, uh, story where the, the guy, the guy comes and the, uh, the army says, we need to take all the, ki- the kids to the army. And, uh, and they, they go they go to the, the the guy who's only got one son. They say, we need your son. And everybody goes, that's awful. He goes, maybe. And then they find the son, but he's injured himself. And, and they go, oh, that's great. He goes, maybe. And then they, you know, and the, like that's what, even in the moments of darkness, you go, this is awful. Maybe, but it might be good too. Yeah, it might up. end up being good. Yeah. So he throws me in his car. Uh, it's 10 p.m. And he says, we're going to go to a real party. And the way you would find parties at that time is you would call a, a, a voicemail. And it would just be a pickup and there'd be this like voice on the other end, often a British accented voice just saying like, come to the, here's where the map point is. It yeah, wasn't even the yeah. directions to the party. It was directions to the place where you would get directions a to the party. clearing in the woods or yes, something. Yes, and yeah, there'd just yeah. be a man standing under a streetlight wow. and he'd hand you a slip of paper and it would say, here's where the party is. We get the directions to the party. It's a full moon. That's significant, but I didn't know it at that point. It's like midnight almost when we get directions and we drive an hour and a half south to Santa Cruz, California from the Bay Area. Uh, to this place called Bonnie Dune. And I look down the beach and there's a thousand kids uh, down at the beach and the, the moon, the full moon is in, is in the sky. And I, and I, I take off running down the beach to this, uh, 
to this party that's happening down. This is a totally different kind of party. This isn't at a convention center. It's not 10,000 people. It's like 800, 1,000 people, weirdos, you know, just like psychedelic, bizarro people. Like yeah. the music is is slower and deeper than it was at that first party. And and I'm down there. This is a real rave, like an underground yeah. full moon party, they called them in, in the Bay Area. Every full moon, they, they, would, they would bring stacks of speakers down to the beach in Santa Cruz or whatever beach they could find. And we get down there and I'm dancing and I sit down around this fire and, um, and, uh, well, I, I could tell you the version that's in the book, but it's a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more, uh, um, narrative, I guess, which is to, to take an aside. Yeah. My name is Moshe Kasher. Mm-hmm. Uh, my birth name when I was born was, was my dad in the Jewish religion, you're supposed the father is supposed to have the right of naming the second child. Mm. The first one goes to the mother, the second one goes to the father, and my father said, I want to name him Moshe. Now my mother said, We can't name him Moshe. That's a crazy name. It sounds like Moose. Now, my mother is deaf. Uh, my father is deaf. My mother has never heard the word uh, Moshe. Yeah. She's never heard the word moose. She does not know what either of these things sound like. Yeah. And yet she won the debate, I guess. And my birth name was Mark Moshe Kasher. And my father never called me Mark. And he never uh, he never acceded to that. When they when they left, that was the one battle he always fought. I was always Moshe. Always, always Moshe. Uh, were you Moshe to your mother or were you Mark? I was Mark. Yeah, yeah. To my mother, I was Mark. To my father... I was uh, I was Moshe, and on my birth certificate it was Mark Moose Kasher and um, Moose. No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. It's Mark right. Moose. Okay, so I stayed Mark through my whole childhood, through all my rehab years. I was Mark, even when in Oakland at the time in the early '90s, Mark became I don't know if you know this, but it became a, like a hip hop slang insult. A Mark was like a sure. was like a fool, like, like a, yeah, yeah, like, like a, a sucker, a sucker. Yeah, and, and and so everybody was you a Mark, Mark, and I, you know, and then the truth is. I felt like that. Yeah. I felt like a like a mark. I felt like a coward and a and a sucker and a, a person that didn't belong. And when I finally got even in Brooklyn, were you Mark? No, in Brooklyn, I was always Moshe. Moshe. Always, always, my whole life. I never identified with my real name, but I didn't want to stand up in Oakland public schools and go, "If you wouldn't mind calling me by my biblically mandated name." (laughs) So I go to rehab. I get out of rehab. I get sober. I go to this rave. I'm in this process of transformation. I'm looking for this new identity. You know, I'm looking to to recreate who I am. Now, there's a video game um, called, I don't know if you ever, do you play video games? No, I don't. There's a video game called uh, Katamari Damacy. Mm-hmm. And it's this video game where this little, anybody? Katamari Damacy? It's a classic. It's this little prince. Prince, I think his name is Katamari. And he, the, the object of the game is that you roll around a little teeny tiny ball a little ball and you grab everything as you're rolling it around you're picking up stuff dander and threads of uh, spools of thread and then cups and uh, and 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 tables and cars and it gets bigger and bigger that's the whole game mm-hmm. bigger and bigger till finally the mission is that you 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 make this ball so big that it becomes the moon it it, it, it he throws it into the air and katamari has won the game when he throws the ball into the air and it becomes the moon now that's sort of what my life was like. Yeah. Was uh was like this little prince, but it was a negative ball. I was as I pushed my little ball through the world, I was picking up all of these terrible things: a psychological diagnosis, a, a, a pair of handcuffs, an arrest record. I go to rehab, to pain, suffering. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's dominating me. It's so yeah. huge that when I got to AA, I said to the people there, uh, like. 
the, my, the, the biggest thing I needed was relief from this ball. And I said to them, like, I got this fucking ball here. I got a ball I've been pushing. And they're like, oh, the ball. We know about the ball. Stop running. And I go, you don't understand. If I stop running, it's going to run me over. They're like, don't worry about it. Just stop running. I go, really? Stop running? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop running. So I stopped running when I got to AA. Yeah. And the ball teeters, groans, rolls me right the fuck over. And I, 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 I like, it hurt. And I go, it just ran me over. And they were like, yeah, yeah, it does that. Yeah. And I go, you knew this was going to run me yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. And I go, well, what do I do? Now what do I do? You know, I puff some air into my body, all like Acme, uh, Wiley Coyote style, and, and puff some air back into my body. And I go, what do I do now? And they walk over with a tiny uh, hammer and chisel, and they go, get to work. And so I start chill chiseling away the, the ball yeah and that's what i had been doing up until that point i had been um chiseling away at the ball but it still loomed large it was still like all it was this big ball representing every mistake i'd ever made every every wrong turn i'd ever taken yeah even at the raves even after my transformation even after those two people hugged me and told me it was going to be okay and i was beautiful i was still dominated it's not over yeah still dominated by this and i get down to this party and the full moon's in the in, in the sky and i sit down at this uh at this uh, bonfire that they're having and jeremy's there my friend who brought me to the party and i'm meeting these girls and this woman alona is the most beautiful woman i've ever seen in my life everyone there by the way is the most beautiful person yeah. i've ever seen in my life yeah. I, I can't even believe it and they're going around and she's talking to me she says like well what's your name and i go well it's 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 Moshe." It's the first time I've ever told anyone my name is Moshe. Yeah. And she says, well, it's nice to meet you, Moshe. And I turn and go, oh, did you meet my ball? And the ball's gone. And the, 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 the full moon is shining brighter than ever before. Little Katamari had thrown some of that ball into the sky. I've never gone by another name since. I've been Moshe since then. Yeah. That is how I determined my name and found my identity in this new reality. And I've never really seen that fucking ball since. That's great. That's great. That's lovely. We've been talking a long time. I have enjoyed every second it's of it. It's been fantastic. I also yeah, went yeah. to Burning Man. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. No, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, we may have to do a part two at some point when you write the next book. Um, I do, uh, because, you know, there, I do want to know, like, what's in, where you go from here. But I also want to, the one thing that I want to just ask, because you've been through so much and, and, and especially so much so young, um, was that, thought of having a child daunting to you like did you feel like i can do this you know i know what you're saying and and i now the thought of having a child was not daunting to me yeah having a child is daunting to me yeah because now when i see her and everything that i understand about her difficulties any difficulties they're all mashed through this lens you know i think it's a pretty story about the ball but the truth is, and it is true, but it's also, it's not fully true ever. We are always, and I'm sure you are, we are always a product of this building blocks of, of trauma that, that, are, that are not really possible to Absolutely. fully excise from you. I'm 20 times, 50 times better than I used to be. I, you know, I've lived a life haunted by depression with the fucking ghost following me. Yeah. And I have kind of shook them mostly. Right. And, um, but I still have days when I don't know what the fucking point of anything is. Yeah. And with these you know? ghosts that you shake, it's like, then you go into this dip and you go, 
fuck and you're still here yeah and, you know it's absolutely it's, i was just talking to somebody about like the, the crux of of therapy for me was wait a minute everybody does all this shit and I can't do anything about all this shit that people do. The only thing I can control is my reaction to it. Yeah. They don't ever fucking change. I have to adjust. I have to change. That's no fucking fair. And the answer is, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. You know, decades of getting to the point where it's like, yeah, that is, yeah. you know, you can't, you know, you, you cannot change other people. You can get away from people. It, it, there are people that, that, it just becomes so hopeless. You have to, you can get away from them, but you're not going to change them. But I still have days of like, what the fuck? Come on, people. Yeah. I got to do it all. It's all the work is on me, you know? So yeah, it's, totally. it's, it never ends. No, there's this, and, and you know, Natasha and I, my wife, um, Natasha, uh, Legero and I do this. We do this advice podcast, the mm -hmm. comedy advice podcast. We'd love to have you on. And I'm there. And, you see this. People call in and it's just like, there is no escaping it. Mm -mm. It is, fo it, it follows on the Endless Honeymoon podcast. It follows, <laughs> you know, but you see, Cling. you see people, it follows people, it follows everyone. You cannot escape. There is no escaping a ghost. The ghost will yeah. always be there. And when I, and to what you're saying about changing yourself, like one, I remember one of the most profound AA lessons I learned had nothing to do with AA. This like Hawaiian kahuna guy that was probably trying to hook up with me when I was underage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Gave me this book of Hawaiian spirituality that I remember this line from it. It said, the world and its people are the cause of all of your problems. But obviously you cannot change the world and its people. Just change yourself and you will find that the world and its people have changed around you. Yeah. And to me, that is the process. Yeah. It's like you change yourself and then all of a sudden the, the adults become less scary. The the trauma, the ghost becomes smaller. The ball becomes smaller and you can walk through the world. Mm -hmm. And then I had a kid and anything that happens, any attention deficit that I notice, any behavioral blip, any of it becomes re It's your ghost. It's like my ghost pops back up and goes, you know, this is very similar to what you were going through. Yeah, yeah. You know what this means, mm -hmm. right? You know that it's possible that blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And and I and also, I'm coming for her. Yeah, no, that's yeah. A, a, exactly. And I'm coming for her because you created her. Yeah. Because it, she came through you. You brought her to this party. Yeah. yeah. And she's built of you. And And the thing that I need to remember with her is... Um, is that is that like I said, destiny only becomes destiny when you look back, and destiny doesn't move. It, there is no destiny moving forward. Mm -hmm. And yes, she is that she is mine, and she does belong half to me. But I also am giving her an experience that is profoundly different than the one that I have. Yeah, one that isn't filled with uh with um with uh analysis and filled with uh, labeling, and it's one that I hope if I do this right is like filled with love. And this book. I wrote is actually dedicated to her because not only l love, but I want her to have these experiences too. I want as wild and, and maybe unconventional as, as, as my journey was like, I want her to find worlds of her own. I want her to find her own people. I want her to find her own way. I don't want to let my fear of her becoming like me stand in the way of her becoming who she's supposed to be. Yeah. Is that the main thing you want her to know? Or is there something else kind of, you know, that you'd, you'd tell her. Well, that is the main thing that this book is for, mm -hmm. for her, 
uh, and I'm not trying to get back to plugging the book, but that the, the message I realized only in writing the whole book was like, I hope so desperately because for me, this journey was so huge of like, and with comedy, like this is the one that I settled into um, with comedy and with Burning Man, with all of them. I, I got these lessons from all of these communities that I spent my life in that have formed my, my, my personhood. They formed who I am, like really, really on this fundamental level. And so I don't know if it's the main thing I want her to know in life, but I think, yes, that if I, I said once to my brother, like if I have a religion, it's have fun. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we have a family, a Legero Casher family motto or a family like, like credo. And mm-hmm. it's uh, work hard, try your best, um, believe in yourself, be kind and have fun. Yeah. And I think like if you can just find the, the combo of all of those things, yeah. then you can have a good life because you're right, Andy, like it's not possible to, you cannot exit life without some form of ghost attaching itself to you mm-hmm. it's not possible it mm-hmm. just isn't the world is painful the world is filled with 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 sadness and chaos and the only thing that for me that makes that chaos palatable uh is experiencing all of the joy and the beauty that is also a big part of life you know there's a yiddish writer shalom aleichem uh, who was a friend of my grandfather's actually, but he's a very famous Yiddish writer. And he mm-hmm. wrote a he wrote a novel called Some Laughter, Some Tears. And to me, that is the encapsulation of the entire uh, the entirety of Jewish history in four words: uh, yeah. some laughter, some tears. And to me, that's the entire that could be the encapsulation of what life is. It's like some laughter, some tears. And it's so easy if you do not develop and you do not do hard work, like you said, like you have been doing, to just let it be some tears or yeah. all tears. Yeah, you just have to find. Like some laughter and yeah. find the joy. Yeah, so yeah. yes, I guess that is what I'd want to leave her or with. Or some, or the, there, there, there are damaged people who it's just laughter. Oh, just some laughter. You know, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. are some people that like they they are on the run yeah, from just those tears, skimming you know? on the surface of life. Yeah. And you know what? That's a good point because that's no life either. No, you no. Know that, and that is what drugs are. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's filled with degradation and sadness. But really, at the, when it comes down to it, what drug addiction is about is about I don't want to go below because. Because what's the 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 monster lurking below the surface of the water is too scary, so I'm going to take these drugs to try to just stay skinny yeah. on top. Yeah, yeah, neither of those are a life. Yeah, it's true. But I'm glad for the life I had I, and the life that I have. It's created this like really beautiful thing, and like it it sent me into stand up. And like you know what stand up is. I'm not gonna. I know we're we're we've been talking a long time, but what stand up is obviously it's the the creative like thing that pays my bills and makes me uh, happy as an artist but also like if i had i if i hadn't gone on that random trip to new york city that one summer and run into chelsea peretti who i'd gone to middle school with and she's like i'm doing stand-up now and i went to an open mic with her and watched her do stand-up and went to a good uh, showcase that night and watched patrice and sarah silverman do stand-up and gone what the fuck am i even looking at yeah then i never would have started stand-up and i never would have met natasha and i never would have created this person who i just literally came from from her holiday pageant at her school <laughs> watching her sing a song like she wouldn't exist ours if- was last night yeah there'd yeah. be some other person and i'd be in some other life and and this is the life that i got and i'm super grateful for it and i'm super grateful that it led me even here well thank you well the book subculture Vul- uh, subculture vulture a memoir in six scenes uh it's coming out at the end of january yeah and uh and i'm gonna read it i just, actually i was telling i told moshe when i got here 
to the studio, they're like, here's some mail for you. And it was a copy of the book, like just in time for me to have like seven minutes to read it before well, you, we did this. You but. know what? I like reading a book and then watching the movie. So this will be kind of like that. You, know, yeah, you, yeah. you listen to the podcast and then read the book. Excellent. But I um, I'm very proud of this book. I worked super hard on it and it's it's a it's um it's I think it's my best work and I I uh, I hope that the people that that get it enjoy it very well. Much. I hope it does really well. And this Thank has you. been a, a wonderful conversation and I really appreciate you coming out uh, and doing it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it too. And thank all of you for listening. Uh, and and I'll be back next week uh, with more of The Three Questions. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rich Garcia. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, with assistance from Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. And do you have a favorite question you always like to ask people? Let us know in the review section. Can't you tell my love's growing? Can't you feel it ain't showing? Oh, you must be a knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.